0: Well, we had a, a great couple of weeks up in Port Rush despite the weather, um, despite the fact that there seemed to be rain for at least part of every single day that we were up there. As you do when you holiday in this part of the world, we made the most of that. But for me, um, one of the, the real encouragements and great blessings of my time spent on holiday was right at the end of holiday. You know what it's like when you're trying to find a church to worship in. Um, I, I wonder, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about the story. We went to a Baptist church in Scotland when we were there. Um, and uh, I think my, my dad didn't want to go. We were with my mom and dad. And, you know, I was nervous about this because I knew my dad didn't want to go to the local church of Scotland church. And he'd looked at the name board and he saw that there was a woman minister there. And, we looked at online and there was now a man, but it just, it wasn't going to work out, okay? So, um, we couldn't find a free church of Scotland anywhere nearby, so we decided, or my dad decided, we'd go to the Baptist church. And I was trying to say to him, Dad, you know, like Baptist churches, they really vary an awful lot around Scotland and around England. And this was a really kind of like full-on, you know, hands-up, happy-clappy, make it up as you go along church. And my, my poor mum and dad, like my dad was halfway through this while we were still standing in the worship time. He just plonked himself down. And uh, I think, but the guy preached well and that pleased dad. So we, we got away with it. But when I've been up in Portrush on holiday over the past 20 plus years, I've really benefited from the ministry of John Kirkpatrick in Portrush. And I was there for both services last Sunday on what was John's penultimate Sunday in Port Russian. There was something incredibly moving about being there, almost feeling like a bit of an imposter, especially last Sunday evening, looking on at this minister finishing his time with his people after 30 years in the pulpit in that church. And what John did last Sunday in, in the morning, he preached very simply on Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the soils, and it was just basically an encouragement to his people to keep on in discipleship and keep on in making Jesus known to others. It was a, a really good message, and it was a napped message with which to finish his ministry. And then in the evening, um, the guy who's been there as his assistant over the last year, while John has been moderator, interviewed John. He interviewed him about the past year and he interviewed him about his 30 years of ministry in Portrush. And I found that incredibly encouraging and challenging, especially some of the, the thoughts that John shared about our denomination um, at a time when we are undergoing a strategic review and we're, we're looking at the viability of congregations and maybe people are looking over their shoulders a bit as that process unfolds. I was really struck by what John was saying. And if you want to describe it in this way, he was talking about a bit of leveling up. He was saying it's actually much more even right the way across the denomination, that in our minds we imagine there are those places and they have it all together and everything is happening there and there are those places that are totally dead. But John talked about life down the B roads, and I find that encouraging because we do that, don't we? It doesn't matter the size of our congregation. We're always looking at somebody else. We're always imagining that the grass is greener in the other congregation. And he was saying, no, there is great life down the B roads and the places that maybe never make the headlines and never make the, the glossy videos. There is good stuff happening. And he also said, and I thought this was interesting, he said, it's never as good as you imagine it to be in churches, that those big glossy churches, the headline churches, have their profound problems as well. And maybe the most striking thing, and this is not my sermon, by the way, tonight, I'm regurgitating some stuff, but I think it's important for us to hear this in Connor, and maybe brothers in ministry to hear this as well. He said, the core is not big anywhere. That is, as he went around the denomination, you imagine these churches and some of them are huge and reputationally, they are the places. But he said, in every single congregation, it doesn't matter the size of people coming through the doors, the amount of people, it is the same in every congregation. There is a small, faithful core doing the work of the kingdom. And that's been my experience in ministry and maybe the experience of brothers in ministry as well. But ultimately, this was a pastor encouraging his people to be faithful disciples. And in doing that, he, he set them an example. He talked a lot about his own daily discipleship and how he availed of the means of grace. And he, he publicly said about how over that 30 years in Portrush, he had started his day by reading the Bible and praying. And I, I found that incredibly challenging. Can I stand tonight and say that that is the case with me. And so I've come back challenged and uh, and maybe challenged as to how I avail of the means of grace in my own life as a disciple of Jesus. He urged us to read our Bibles and to pray, and ultimately he reminded these people, people who he clearly loved, he reminded them of the beauty of the gospel. That was his big theme. So, it was someone ending their ministry by reminding people of what is most important. And that makes sense, doesn't it? We want to make our last words count. If we know that the the message that we are bringing is the last message that we're bringing to particular people, we want to, to get it right and make sure that we're not wasting our time but saying the things that urgently need to be heard. And tonight we're coming to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. And like any faithful pastor and teacher, Paul ends with an emphasis on really important things. Now, each time we have come to this Bible book, we've been reminding ourselves of the nature of the relationship that existed between Paul, the writer of this letter, and Timothy its recipient. So, we know at this stage, and hopefully you do, or Connor people, know this almost off by heart, but you know that Timothy was a co-worker in the gospel, someone who had worked alongside Paul in ministry and missionary endeavor. But how does Paul regard him? He doesn't regard him as a utility. He doesn't regard him as as someone who he has just been dragging around doing work with him. No, we get this sense of the warmth. He, he, he talks about him as being my true son in the faith. Back at the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 2. And then if we were to take time to go into the next letter, 2 Timothy 1, 4, you get this sense of the warmth. He says to Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And so, as I was coming back here to Connor, that's a challenge for me. Is that how I feel about my brothers and sisters here? That, oh, this is going to be great. And I I, I promise you, I was excited about being back here today. Just that opportunity to see people again, but there is a, a real depth to this gospel relationship here. And maybe you can think of people like that, brothers and sisters in Christ That just to be in their presence, to be with them is something that fills you with joy. And so, because of this, we have described this letter all the way through our time studying it as being both personal and prophetic. It is highly personal. It is one worker in the gospel writing to a fellow worker who he has a deep affection for in Christ, And there are personal remarks and personal greetings peppering this letter as a result. And yet, incredibly, and this is the thing that brings us right in to our fellowship and our time together tonight, this letter is prophetic. So that as Paul wrote these remarks to his friend, to his brother in Christ, to the one who he regarded as being a son in the faith, the Holy Spirit was inspiring those words. God breathed words, words that come to us in Scripture. Words, therefore, that we should take seriously and pay heed to tonight and every time we read them together. And so we come to the last part of chapter 6, which is described as Paul's charge to Timothy. And he's ending the letter with really important things that he wants to say. We have here at the end of the letter important reminders about the gospel and the nature of this good news. We have important instructions to Timothy about how he should live his life in the light of that gospel. And then, and we'll come to this next week, finally we have important instructions that Timothy needs to pass on to particular people within the congregation that he's ministering in. In fact, this is such an important closing message that we're going to take our time looking at it and thinking about it together. We're not going to try and bite off more than we can chew tonight, but instead we'll think about this passage over two weeks and we have the time to do that. So, last time we, and there's been a bit of a gap over the past few weeks while I've been away, and so it's worth highlighting these things again. Last time, we looked together at the first part of chapter 6. And what we get to see there, and we see this throughout the letter, is that Paul's great love for Timothy results in him issuing warnings to him about many things. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? It stands to reason And we see that in our lives, that those that we love most, those that we're concerned about the most, are the people that we will be most quick to to issue warnings to. That's why our little ones, our children, when they're running about, don't go too close there, don't run over to the edge there, and all the rest of it. And I find I'm doing that with my parents, but that's another story. But we issue warnings to people that we love. And maybe that's a reminder to us tonight in a time when we can be very passive as believers in Christ in fellowship with one another that actually out of a deep love for others, out of a deep love for the brothers and sisters in Christ around us, we should be willing to to warn them when we see them stepping away from the truth of God's Word, when we see things about their practices, or about their life, or about their patterns, and how they avail of the means of grace that concern us, we should be quick and brave to say, hang on, you know I love you, you know that you're a precious brother, a precious sister, what's going on? And you know from God's Word the way this needs to be. And in the case of Paul, writing to Timothy here in chapter 6? Well, he warned him, first of all, about troublemakers and how they should be dealt with. He talks about that in verse 3, and that's been an ongoing theme in this letter, in this book. And then he also talks to him in verses 6 to 10, culminating in verse 10, uh, about the danger of loving money and how that love of money and material things is very much linked with ungodliness. And so, as we look at this charge, we look tonight at verses 11 to 16, and I'm not going to have three points with alliterated headings, as can be my habit at times, but we're simply going to look at what these verses say. And we begin with that phrase in verse 11, man of God, because it's an interesting phrase. Encounter often in the Old Testament. There are a number of people who have that title, who are referred to in that way in the Old Testament scriptures. Seeing as we've got ministers here tonight, well, let's have a bit of a quiz and and let's try and think about some of the people in the Old Testament who are called man of God. Does anybody want to give me any, any suggestions as to people or any answers? as to people who are known as man of God in the Old Testament? Elijah, good. That's great. It's always good when a minister gets in with the right answer. Takes a bit of the pressure off. Elijah, yep. And linked to him also, if we try and run our way through. So, Elijah and Elisha. Anybody else? Oh, you're also, you're either... Yeah, I think you're just reluctant to shout it out. Nobody wants to make a mistake. Right, I'll go through the list really quickly. Moses, he is referred to as a man of God. Eli, um, even though he has this really dysfunctional family, there's a real grace note there. Eli, who looked after the young Samuel. Samuel himself. David, of course, and we've thought about David a lot. Then a lesser known person, a bit of a cameo role, Shemiah. He was the guy who brought God's Word to King Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12. Elijah, Elisha, full marks there for mentioning them. And then there are some unnamed people as well. That it's just in the narrative it says, I think, in Judges and in First Kings as well, it talks about a man of God who brings a particular message. And the thing that we need to understand is that that title, that designation is used of someone who is a leader of God's people and or a messenger bringing God's Word. And while it's used of a number of people in the Old Testament, it is only used of one person in the New Testament. It is said of Timothy by Paul here in verse 11 and then again in 2 Timothy 3 verse 17. And what a way for Timothy to be identified Imagine for Timothy receiving this letter and this apostle who he would have inevitably looked up to saying to him, O man of God. And it reflects the calling that Timothy had been given that if we think back to that Old Testament pattern of the use of that phrase, he was both a leader, he was a, a pastor of God's people, but he was also someone called to bring God's Word to people. And just as an aside, I wonder would you regard yourself as being a man of God, being a woman of God? Is that something that you are recognized as being by others around you? It's incredible when you hear, I think particularly of older people, when someone's talking about them, and you hear them say, oh, that guy there who works in that congregation, or that elder, he's a man of God. Oh, that, she's a godly woman. She's a godly lady. She's a real woman of God. And what is it that he says to Timothy as he addresses him, man of God? Well, he begins in verse 11 by saying, flee from all this. And hopefully it's clear enough as to what Timothy is to flee from in the context of what we were looking at last time in the first part of this chapter, The this that Paul is talking about are the things that have already been mentioned in this chapter, namely the teaching of false doctrine, verses 3 to 5, and that love of money linked to ungodliness in verses 6 to 10. That's clear enough, but what does it actually mean for Timothy to flee from it? Because that's something that could be misunderstood. Is Paul saying to flee from these things in the sense that just avoid any confrontation, avoid a fight with anybody who is pursuing this, who is teaching false doctrine, and who is pursuing a love of money? Just ignore it and get on with what you're doing. Well, that's of course not what Paul is saying, and we, we get a strong sense of that all the way through the letter. You know, the whole thrust of this letter is summed up in, in verse 12, their fight, the good fight. And it's not so much a war uh, metaphor, but more a, a kind of physical sport one, a bit more of a, a kind of boxing or mixed martial arts or whatever your, your kind of sport of choice is in that kind of realm. And Paul, of course, is saying about these issues, they are to be confronted, but you must avoid these things in your own life. Timothy, you are not to be someone who is swayed by false doctrine and who tolerates it. You're not to be someone who gets caught up in material pursuits and gets caught up with a love of money that distracts you from gospel ministry and from gospel devotion in your own life. But rather instead, as Paul puts it in verse 11, here's the encouragement as to what he must do. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And when we list qualities like that, it inevitably makes us think about similar lists that are contained in the New Testament, not least in the letters of Paul. And that then very much links us with the Holy Spirit and His activity in our life. So are we open to the work of God's Holy Spirit? Are we seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, and to become more and more like Jesus Therefore, pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Are these qualities and features of our life? And then verse 12 is an absolutely remarkable verse, and it's one that we we do need to consider in a careful way because Paul goes on to say to Timothy, Timothy, take hold of, Of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses? And I know that one of the biggest questions that occupies the minds of believers, and one of the biggest debating points within churches is the nature of salvation. Is it something that is a done deal that is absolutely secure Or is it something that we can, in fact, lose? Well, let's remember the whole of Scripture and what it teaches. And the overwhelming message of Scripture is that we are called. We are chosen as God's people, as indeed this verse states. And we think of the the teaching of the Lord Jesus Himself where he reminds his disciples, look, it's not you who have chosen me. I have chosen you. And we think of that wonderful teaching of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 when he is talking about himself being the good shepherd. And in the course of talking about the relationship that he has with his sheep, with those who belong to him, he says of those sheep of those people, He says that no one can pluck them, can snatch them out of His hand. No one can snatch them out of His Father's hand that He and the Father are one. So what is meant by taking hold of the eternal life to which we have been called? It's about grasping it, living this to the full, It's Paul calling Timothy back to the very foundation of his faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that he has confessed. And we know that when we look at Scripture like this, there is a real balance to be struck in Christian life. On the one hand, just look again at the verbs in this passage. And if you look at those verbs It's a great reminder that the Christian life is an active one. Look at those words, those verbs. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. So folks, the Christian life is not a passive one. It's not about us kind of lying back and floating our way to glory. But at the same time, we must all rest in what Christ has done for us because receiving this gift of eternal life comes through, through trusting in Him and trusting in His finished work. So that you see there that the, the good confession that Paul talks about in Timothy's life is linked with Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus, he says of Jesus, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. so that when we are proclaiming our faith in Christ, we're confessing, we're believing the truth about Jesus that He Himself has revealed. But let's finish by looking at the end of this first part of the passage because it finishes with this wonderful, this powerful description of God. And this is often what Paul does in the course of his writing, inspired by his Holy Spirit. And to be honest, it kind of gives me encouragement in my own devotional life because I don't know about you, but I find myself going off in tangents when I'm earnestly trying to to meditate on a passage of Scripture and pray through that passage of Scripture. And thankfully, sometimes those tangents are simply because I'm so struck by what God has done in Christ or I'm so struck by the identity of Jesus or by the truth of who God is. And so often, because next week you'll see how he picks up the thread again in the final verses. But this is Paul's way and you can imagine him writing and like the ink's at a premium, but he just goes off in one and he does it here. Verse 15, he breaks off the argument And it's just as he is speaking about this, the realization dawns on him afresh, and he proclaims in praise this wonderful doxology, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever, amen. Amen. And there's there's a few sermons in that alone, but we're not going to get into the depths, plumb the depths of that particular passage or those verses tonight. But this isn't just flurry language. This is great truth, and it is life-transforming truth. So that as we end tonight, and we end with those words, well, who else would you want to give your allegiance and your all to? As you think about who the Lord is and as we reflect tonight on what He has done for us in Christ, we know, we know that He is deserving of our all. And we want to reflect on this great truth. And we want to to sing praise to God and sing of this great truth as we take these words and sing them.